Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I welcome back Pat TDS. On the show, we discuss the Massachusetts teacher strike, union organizing, neoliberalism, and I put Mother Teresa on blast. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. Yeah, that felt like uh, an interminable January. Just uh, too much, too much January for us over here. <laughs> How's your weather? Uh, it's been a little bit colder than last winter. Last winter felt like a prolonged fall into a early spring, and uh, this year we've got some ice and snow and stuff. So that's nice. It just hasn't been nearly as much snow as we would normally have this time of year. I'm still pretty young, but you know, slowly getting up there in age. I love talking about the weather. I find it fascinating. I don't think uh, many of my podcast uh, guests are looking for that, though. That kind of oh, commentary. Oh, don't you, you like talking about the weather? I love it. No, I've actually come to love it quite a bit. Um, and since I, you know, since I ride my bike to work, I've taken a real interest in knowing what the weather is going to oh, be yeah. like the next day. Um, and I've always sworn that you get better weather data that's less sensationalized if you move away from a weather service that's trying to, you know, get your clicks to get, uh, to pay the revenue. So I use uh, weather.gov, which kind of like coordinates all of the different weather stations in NOAA. Um, and then there's now an app uh, called Climb from that same group. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's less specific because there's no way to actually get the kind of details that you get when you open up your iPhone weather. Like that's just not even known. No one has that info. So they're just making it up. Um, but it feels like it's more accurate and less designed to get you to click on it. You know, it's just yeah. like so silly to use capitalism to regulate any of our trade. But really whether, is. you know, weather reporting is, is just another one of those that's going to be different. It's changed by the fact that it's it's monetized. Yeah, it should be a public service. It's a it's a benefit to the people, by the people, for the people, right? Yeah, and NOAA is, right? So that's why, like, going to a governmental agency, I feel like yeah. it's less designed to just catch your attention. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm super excited because we just saw a big win um, in Massachusetts. And Hold on, and hold on, hold on. Easy, easy, easy. <laughs> All right. I got to say one thing here. I've gained a lot of weight since uh, college and grad school, and I think one of those reasons is – I used to bike every day to 
uh, college and uh, grad school, go to class. I hate the 9 to 5 grind, sitting at a computer screen all day long. I think like 40% of the population does that. We're not meant, to, we're not designed to be doing this. This is not how no. we should spend our lives. No. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just hate the um, social engineering project, suburbanization, uh, you know, the, the, the roads, the highway systems are car-centric infrastructure, no public transportation, no high-speed rail. It's bad for our lifestyles. It doesn't, you know, we don't have, I mean, some cities are walkable, some more than others, but certainly not where I am here in South Texas. You know, you could be driving an hour or two in between some of the towns down here. So it's just a completely car-centric infrastructure, and uh, I think it could be designed a lot better uh, less waste of space, um, you know, provide walkable communities, opportunities to ride your bike and exercise, and uh, hopefully, you know, maybe save some of the environment, save some, some of the wildlife areas, the park areas, and maybe in between those cities, um, concentrated people and gardens and farming, you know, we could maybe uh, have some wild um, game lands and that kind of thing for biodiversity, and in between the cities and concentrations of people, maybe we could do... Uh, you know, more high-speed rail that can, can connect us instead of, you know, Taylor Swift flying around the globe, destroying the planet, burning up CO2. Speaking of which, I saw that, uh, I saw that, um, she was trying to sue the person. I guess Elon Musk t- kicked that guy off of, uh, Twitter that was following his private jet. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, Taylor Swift is threatening to sue the guy that's, uh, tracking her jet. But, uh, it should be public knowledge. What we should know how much CO2 she's burning and wasting on a year uh, for someone also. It's just so hypocritical that, uh, you know, pretends to care about the environment and supposedly, you know, politically leans slightly left. Yeah. I don't know how anyone justifies flying nowadays when we know what we know about what we're doing to the environment. Um, But you make a really good point about the way that our lifestyles now don't come anywhere near what we're designed to do as a species. And I was thinking about this the other day in regard to students and how they use cell phones. And I think just seeing some folks as I drove into work one morning, but I was thinking about how cell phones, you know, first of all, I've talked about on this podcast before our like reliance on them was not consensual. No one sat down and said, okay, yeah, let let me become beholden to a small box. Manufacturer of consent. Right. But the other thing is like getting us into a sedentary lifestyle. Cell phones are perfect for that, right? Like you're never bored when you're sitting anymore, right? So kids can just like go home and get like sectioned off into their little spot in their house, not interact with many people in the night, not do anything active, not chase any hobbies that are like physical in nature and like actually building models or whatever it might be. Right. So like we have now like designed a new piece it's like kind of like a an entertainment box and like a, a box that keeps us from like actually like getting creative or expressing ourselves or even acting as we should as a species for our own health and like mental well-being. Um, so it's just another piece in that. In that you know, I, I, um, I, I work in healthcare and I, um, you know, because of healthcare, we skew a little bit older. We typically work with older people that are the individuals that need, you know, medical services, healthcare services. Sure. Yeah. I, I try to be holistic about my um, practice. And some of the, some of the questions that are important to me are like hobbies, you know, but especially with like older individuals, they worked their entire lives, raising families, you know, getting groceries, 
uh, keeping and maintaining the house, I found out that a lot of people are ready, you know, to retire and then they get there and they're bored. They don't have anything to do. You know, they don't have any hobbies. They, they spent their whole lives, you know, kind of um, serving the man, you know, serving society, you know, being a cog in the capitalist machine. You know, we have such a finite time here on Earth, so much opportunity to develop hobbies, uh, develop creativity, take up different um you know, interests and, and whatnot, but unfortunately, you know, the nine to five grind that we're both on, you know, you kind of lose that. And then you find yourself, you know, working towards retirement. And then when you get there, you know, your body's, body's broken down. You're more so kind of geared to a sedentary lifestyle. You're not really taking advantage of these golden years. You know, this is, it'd be nice to have a little bit more free time, I guess, on that nine to five grind. One of the things I find very important to me uh, it's like a four-day four work week, four-day, eight-hour work week. I think that would be a great thing. I don't think we should stop there. I want workers to own and control the means of production, take over those means of production. So we're not saying, hey, we want an eight-hour work, work day, uh, four-day work week. We get together and say, hey, how many hours do you think it would be reasonable to have a nice profitable or maybe we get rid of the profit mode, have a, have a functional business to society. Well, you know? And like, what's the need right now? Right. So if you've got a company that gears up for a huge winter, you know, Christmas season or whatever it might be, then your workers organize your production around that. Right. And you might have a real heavy work, you know, schedule for the winter months, but then you, you're as a company decide like we value our time off and we're going to structure it. So you all have big chunks of time off. Right. Like, no one is ever going to sit, you know, I'll be on their deathbed and be like, damn it, I wish I had put in another hour that day, you know, but it's like the time, like, that's part of the reason I chose teaching. Like I'm, I was 30 years old before I became a teacher or like about to be 30, but, um, you know, I was actually moved by ta Coates and his writing about reparations and kind of like the black experience in the education system to get into urban education. But the other piece of it was like, I knew that my wife and I were about to start having kids and uh, I didn't want to be stuck at a, a job until five every day. Right. Like I get out around three and I get home and I get some nice afternoon time with my kids. And that's a choice I made. And that's just not true for them. Like I look at my neighbors who are like picking up their kids from after school at six thirty, seven at night, some nights. And I'm just like, what's it, what's, what's the point, right? Like, what's the point of doing any of this and having this house you have and having these kids and, you know, this life that you're trying to build? Like, if you can't live that life, you're not living your life. Like, what what are you doing? And the hobbies question, I absolutely love, you know, you've mentioned this in, in previous conversations we've had. I think that's such a valuable uh, question for, for, you know, your, your clients, your patients, you know, just like, what is it that makes you happy and, and how can you increase the how do you want to spend time? your time? You want to be on yeah. your phone? You want to be on watching Fox News? Uh, you know, you want to be eating chips or, you know, do you want to discover? I don't know. I mean, traveling is expensive. I think a lot of people are like, hey, go out and travel the world. It's like, oh, you know, well, I got bills and, you know, I got I got some limitations to that travel stuff. But, you know, do what you can. I mean, take up drawing, take up reading. Got yeah. libraries still. I mean, the rights probably try to close those down too. But there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, woodworking, carpentry—that seems to be one of the um, more popular hobbies for men later in life. And I find those people like 
in much better shape mentally, physically, much more driven. You know, the people that are doing maybe even working on cars, you know, stuff like that. It seems like they're just, you know, so much, have so much more energy, vitality later in life, even, you know, late into their 70s and 80s. If they have hobbies, you know, as simple as woodworking, carpentry, something, you know, to keep you going and, and keep your mind and your body occupied, you know, because yeah. we spend our whole lives working for someone else. So maybe if we're lucky at the end of our life, we might get a little bit of time, maybe five or ten good years to really focus on ourselves, self-development, creativity, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Speaking of which, I made a transition a few years back, uh, and, and I'm in the same profession. I'm, I'm in healthcare, but I actually joined... Uh, a company that offered a, a union, a lot better benefits, took a little bit of a hit in salary. So this is a transition, and we talked about workplace structure and um, you know maybe taking over and taking back the means of production and putting together a workplace that works for working people instead of us being subservient to the man and you know meeting all their goals of profitability or whatever else. So what's the state of uh, education in Massachusetts? I just retweeted earlier today a story you sent over about uh, looks like it, it, it could be a likelihood that uh, workers are going to be going on strike and withholding their services in the state of Massachusetts. Educators, I should say. So go ahead and uh, let's let's get to the state of the education system in Massachusetts right now. What's going on with uh, labor relations? Yeah, so um, actually the good news on that uh, share is that it was a strike. They went on a strike. They held out for two weeks and they got uh, a better deal than they could have imagined. So um, that was in Newton, which is a similarly sized city to the city I teach in currently, although Newton is uh, more affluent. So there's more money to be, you know, sharing with their educators that they're absolutely not doing. So, you know, this contract is a much better contract. And what's super interesting about it is that the teachers basically got what they wanted in negotiations and the district tried, the um, school committee tried to like get by on that and hang their hat on that. But every teacher's union represents at least three units. That's like the bus drivers is one of the units. And then another unit is like the support staff, the paraprofessionals, the people who might not have a teaching degree and don't get the full salary, or even often they often work as hourly workers, right? And the commonality that we see through any of the strikes that have taken place in Massachusetts is that it's this solidarity across uh, bargaining units. You know, people who work side by side every day and any good teacher will tell you that the paras in their building do the brunt of the work and are really the glue that holds everything together. And it's just cool to see these strikes uh, not uh, not always and very rarely looking just for a salary bump for teachers. Um, they're often looking for conditions that will make working easier for everyone working there, but also they're very often fighting for things that will really improve outcomes for students. That's one of the issues that I have with unions. I think unions are great, but that's only a step, you know, in, in the ultimate goal of, you know, human beings, working people taking control of their own lives taking control of their local communities, taking control of their workplaces. We're not just wage slaves punching a, punching a uh, time clock, you know, and um, trying to get money for groceries and to pay rent and stuff like that. You know, this is our time. The finite is limited. Our time is limited here. It's very finite here on Earth. You know, we should be in control and not, you know, taking orders from above. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. But one of the issues that I have with, like, the unions – um, is yeah, they typically fight for their members. Now, ultimately, unions do bring up 
um, has a ripple effect. Do bring up living standards for everyone, you know, in the local community, um, improve benefits, safety conditions at work. Um, certainly salaries, like if one factory, let's say in the town, uh, unionizes, you know, the, that other factory has to um, notice, you know, and, and, and if wages go up in that one factory, they're probably going to have to go up in the other factory too, just to kind of keep up. So it has that ripple effect, but like, you know, like United Auto Workers and that sort of thing, uh, when they're fighting for like, let's say healthcare, it's a great thing, get healthcare for your members, right? But I really wish there'd be a lot more solidarity uh, movement and even, you know, even if it's just rhetoric to say, uh, you know, we're fighting for Medicare for all. We're going to start with, you know, better health care for our members, but we're not going to stop. We want health care for everyone. It should be a human right. That's solidarity, and I think that's what the unions and the workers' movements were built on. Unfortunately, in a capitalist society, they try to itemize us, divide us, uh, you know, all for ourselves, nothing for everyone, anyone else. You know, that the vile maxim of mankind, uh, Adam Smith talked about. But, uh, I, yeah, I think it would be a great thing if, you know, you make you made these small victories for your members and teachers and whatnot, but then you know the, the, that it didn't stop there. You're fought for. I just saw a, um, a governor. Was it was it your state? I think it was a, maybe New Hampshire or Vermont. They bought up uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, medical debt um, for something not much for like a fraction of it. They bought up maybe two hundred million. I'm just making up this number, but something around that around those lines, one hundred fifty, maybe two hundred fifty million dollars of medical debt, uh, they bought for maybe 10 million, something like that. And they just canceled it, gone, whipped it off, the yeah. wiped it off the books. That's awesome. That's, that's stuff that can be done at the state level, at the, at the local level, at the state level. And then hopefully you carry the fight nationally and get into uh, a Medicare for all type of movement. And, uh, you know, if enough people got together and demanded it and we marched on every town, every, every, uh, you know, station, uh, or you know, town square throughout the country, or march on Washington D.C. We get a couple million people together. It'll happen. It'll happen for us. We just gotta. We can't stop. We gotta take the fight. <laughs> we gotta take the fight to the to the uh, you know the, the ruling class and you know, not take no for an answer. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a, a long period of, in U.S. history where uh, neoliberal neoliberalism was taking hold again. I'm having trouble with the word again, which is random, but anyway. And unions were being disempowered or, or at least being scapegoated and treated as boogeymen and treated as a reason why jobs were being offshored, even though the fact that that was happening was actually having to do with corporate greed. Um, it was, you know, shouldered on unions. And I think union leadership has maintained this old mindset from those days when they talk about things like public health care options and public health care in general. Um, but I think you'll see that change. Like as we're seeing now, a lot of unions like the UAW, uh, as one example, AFL-CIO just joined, um, they've been calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And, and folks are like, whoa, what's going on? Why are unions trying to make a statement about something that has to do with foreign policy? And that's what unions did, right? In the yeah. 50s and 60s, they took positions like that yeah. just to make those positions well-known, make them known to their workers and ha start conversations about them, right? So it's like, I think that, um, you know, the, the rank and file 
during the last couple of presidential campaigns were in support of a Medicare for all system because they have family members who aren't part of their union. But I think some of the union leadership are, were still sticking on to those old ways of thinking like, oh, we got to keep our union competitive. And that means that we have fought for this amazing health care for our members. And so that's we're not going to get too involved in the Medicare for all talk because this is still an attractive reason for folks to join our union. Right. So that's like kind of the old mindset, I do think we're moving away from it. And I think we'll start to see, and I think unions are starting to understand that as they stand up for issues that might not be directly impacting the lives of their members, they're still building solidarity, right? Every issue that you name, even if it doesn't speak to every person in your union, is going to get some people fired up about union activism and, and union organizing and, you know, all of that stuff, right? So like you keep pulling out these things and you're going to show people that you stand for a lot and you stand for human rights, right? You stand for, for what's best for everyday people. And unfortunately, we don't have a government that does that. And we don't have very many groups. Even our nonprofit industrial complex is, is lacking very much so in those, in those spaces, you know, and, and calling for, for what we actually need. Like you said, public ownership, public control, right? Like why would it not – why would our internet – <laughs> you know, it's in our Wi-Fi, it should be, yeah, yeah, it should be organized mean, if, in such a way. We're telling kids that they're going to sometimes be re responsible for remote learning. Then, at that point, it's an equity issue, and it should be a public good. There's no reason we should. We pay some of the highest costs for internet in the industrialized world. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, and so one other piece before we move on, and as we kind of tend to do and go through issues that that fire both both of us up, I do want to mention a couple more things about the um, about the Massachusetts teachers and how like we've had six successful Wildcat strikes in the last couple of years. Is that a talk to us about that. Yeah, so like what that is is it's illegal in Massachusetts for union for teachers unions to go on strike, and it's a public sector employee union type of law and it started in the 70s again my, uh, like, my, during that my cousin's a firefighter and they do the same thing for him they say hey you're a public service you can't go on strike well what yeah. leverage do what leverage do workers have if you're if you're making it right. legal for them to go on strike that, that should not be a real law let's get that off the books but uh, no it, go ahead. and we should definitely and we are organizing within our broader union mta which is kind of the statewide level of our locals um we are organizing for a state law change um, but the fact of the matter is, like, with the Newton Union, they racked up hefty fines. But the judge, after, like, three or four days, was like, hey, I'm not going to add to this because it's it's unfair labor practices, basically, is what the judge said, which is great to hear him call out that law. And that's one but thing then, I do, like, the Democratic Party for. I mean, Republican judges, they, they're terrible. So, I mean, not that the Democratic Party is anything great, but if I could have a Democratic judge in there over a Republican judge, I would much prefer that almost in every instance. You know what I mean? So, I mean, yeah. if I was a Republican judge, I'm sure that person was a left-leaning Democrat. You know, maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but, I mean, Republicans seem to not uh, be almost ever rule in the favor of working people or normal people. They always rule, it seems like, in favor of business. So, again, I hate the Democratic Party. I hate the two-party system. I hate political parties in principle. But I do prefer uh, Democrat judges over Republicans just for their tendency every once in a while to get it right and rule maybe in the favor of working people. I mean, that's the only argument I can even think of nowadays to, uh, for voting for Democrats is the fact that they are, in fact, still 
and I wouldn't go up as far as to say strong on labor, but they are far stronger on labor than conservatives. Like conservatives are trying to dismantle any of the systems so we have in place. I can't call right. it. I'm a conservative. I'm a classical conservative because I take seriously liberty, justice, equality, stuff like that. I want to conserve that. But these are anti. These are reactionary, pro-statist, pro-business, pro-capitalism, pro. Nonsense, but that's not conservatism. Like, for example, you know, they want to cut Social Security and Medicare and and pretty much anything that goes to to um, you know normal working class people. They want to cut all social services except to those that are you know public subsidies to the rich and powerful. Corporate welfare—that's essentially what neoliberalism is. So they're more neoliberal than anything. Uh, but they're certainly not conservatives. They're not trying to conserve, you know, 18th century values um, that the founding fathers, you know, so-called founding fathers were talking about. Like, again, maybe they were maybe they said these things, but they didn't actually believe it in principle because some of them, many of them had slaves. But, you know, things like liberty, equality, justice, democracy. I mean, I want to conserve those types of values, but these neocons or whatever they're called, you know, they, these are reactionary statists. Um and, but anyways, I had, to, I had to interject there. They, they are not real conservatives. They're so-called conservatives. They're just conservative in name, certainly. But what they stand for is nothing what even the classical conservatives talked about, you know, centuries ago. No, and, and but in the pre-call, we were talking about uh, the compensation for, for recording artists and musicians and how the move is, is now going to be on platforms like Spotify to kind of compensate the most highly streamed artists. So the, the richest already artists are going to get compensated at the fairest rate, and then everyone else is going to get a lower compensation. And And the reason I wanted to bring that piece back up is that, like, as we're talking about these teacher strikes, before the Newton teacher strikes, uh, that just ended successfully for teachers in November, there was a strike in Andover and they had been setting this up for a couple of years, but like, I just want to mention briefly, like how, you know, to your point about the fact that strikes, when you make strikes illegal, you take away all of the, the bargaining power of that labor group. Right. But so that strike in Andover. You was can handcuff them. Like, if they're like, right, hey, we're right. going to rack up these big bills. I can't afford to be out of a job. I can't afford to pay legal bills. If you if you scare just a couple people to say, hey, I'm going to break the lines or whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm out on the strike. That's what they want. You know what I mean? So it's just like the power to change opinions. Like, even if they're not seriously even going to um, regulate these fines and whatnot, hopefully they don't. It could scare some people. It could weaken, you know, it could weaken the, the movement. It could weaken the, the strike. It could weaken the group as a whole. And that's exactly what they want. Well, and just to give an example of what was accomplished through a strike, um, it, it took 10 months and 27 bargaining sessions, and they hadn't gotten anywhere in Andover. And then after three days of strike, they came back with all of those demands that they had. And one of the demands, you know, to the point, the reason I brought up the Spotify thing and, and compensating the richest artists better than you compensate those those struggling and kind of like new you know, uh, new to the market artists, whatever. The rich is get that, richer maximum of the capitalist right. society. So, so what, and, what Andover was asking for was for their support staff, for their lowest paid um, to get the biggest pay increase. So after they went on strike for three days, the contract that came back was that those lower bargaining units that, that had traditionally earned less money got a 60% 
wage increase on their wages. <laughs> and then the teachers got a 37% pay increase. So it's still good for the teachers, but the teachers recognize like the people who need the most help in these contract negotiations are those support staff. And just like Newton, Newton actually got a fair contract for teachers, but then they, the uh, district didn't come around on those support staff, those paraprofessionals and those drivers. And so Newton was like, no, well, this is not what this is. This is all in. We're all in and we're going to fight for every member. And even in Andover, one of the pushes the union had before the strike was to take some of the pandemic funds that were coming in and give that money to, as a bonus, to uh, the support staff that were on the outskirts of their union and not actually members of their union. So they wanted to like kind of take that pandemic money and make sure that it, it reached those outer workers like uh, cafeteria staff were not in that union, you know? And so like or, or that, just another, as hard as teachers, uh, yeah. if not harder, you know, I mean, I, right. I've been in the school system. Everyone has, you know, you see those people, uh, the janitors, the bus drivers, um, the cafeteria workers, they're working just as hard of any, as anybody, if not harder. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is like, you were kind of talking about this in a previous episode, but like the real way to organize and to get other members of your union fired up, right? It's about, you know, uh, sharing power, right? You, we talk about like, it's not top down. You want to build this out and you want to fire up every member so that you get more participation, more solidarity if things happen, more uh, participation in actions like wearing t-shirts and buttons and all that stuff is you just have to make every member of the union feel like they're being listened to, right? It's so funny that it comes down to a key a human need, right? When you do that, like Andover talks about it, it took them two years to build up the strike readiness for their successful strike, but it took them getting down to the building level and then getting each member of the union to feel like someone from the union cared about their issues. And so, you know, we're in the process now of talking about within my union, how to build that strike readiness. And we recognize that we're very likely not there for this contract round, which we're doing this year. We need to get a contract, you know, but what we can start to do is build networks of solidarity and practice actions now. Um, so that if it ever came to it, it would, you know, have, it would, we would be ready for, for such an action. But the, the best thing about like six wildcat strikes that were successful in the last, you know, year and a half, two years, is that we don't necessarily even have to talk about anything like that, right? We just have to build our solidarity and make sure every member feels listened to and just go into those negotiations with the knowledge that the district sitting across the negotiating table from you is scared, very scared about a potential work stoppage, right? Because it's just disastrous for the entire district, right? We have a pretty big city. And for the community, of, for the kids. For yeah, the parents, it's just you're, you're out of options. Like in Newton, they were scrambling with the boys and girls clubs and and all that kind of stuff to find childcare and provide it and all that. But it's just it's a huge disruption. A necessary right? evil to get what and you it's, deserve, though. Well, and it's and it's egg on the face of the district, right? Because then they turn around, whether it's three days or two weeks or whatever later, and they give in to the demands because they realize that the workers aren't going to budge, and that's where the solidarity is the the key factor. So I'm reading homage Catalonia right now, talking about like solidarity and that kind of stuff. I mean, that was, uh, I guess, the most famous anarchist resistance movement. And one of the things I remember reading and, um, you know, really resonated with me was uh, when Orwell, it's written by Orwell, when he first gets there walking around Barcelona and uh, 
It was like you can look a, a, a waitress, a waiter, a server, a barber in the eye. And, uh, you know, you, you, you just kind of greeted one another. There was no yes, sir, no, sir. You know, it was just kind of informal relations. Uh, they were getting rid of hierarchy, uh, class status. We were all equals. You know, that was that was his first. That's what that was. He felt. You know, in, in, in I guess viscerally, he was like, you know, you look at someone and you just see that you're their equal. And the other thing that kind of got rid of was like tipping. You know, we're kind of all in this. Nice. They, they changed yeah. the economy around. You know, we're all trying yeah. to provide mutual aid. You're, you know, you do this, I'll do that. We're all working together. This this movement's bigger than ourselves. You know that kind right. of thing. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what all solidarity movements do is bring people together. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, and Chomsky talks about it, the common good, right? There's a lot of talk about the common good. These corporations, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, they're all, you know, they're all trying to improve um, the common good, you know. But unfortunately, um, you know, what <laughs> the common good for the CEO or the CFO is a little bit different than maybe for the janitor. You know, they have a, they have a different things that they have a different agenda. They have different wants, needs, and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, in a solidarity movement, we're just trying to make things better for everyone, you know. And that means hopefully um, getting the most vulnerable people, uh, get, listening to them, you know, and trying to meet some of their demands and knowing, you know, maybe teachers are struggling for sure. And there's no doubt teachers need to make more money. But what about those cafeteria workers, those drivers working hourly wages, maybe two and three jobs just try to just to try to make ends meet? I think that's an awesome thing to, you know, when you're fighting for money and, and things can get dicey. And, you know, we're talking about paychecks and, you know, uh, living wages and families and, you know, going to college, all these sorts of goals that people have. But trying to put the most vulnerable people ahead of yourselves like that's. That's so cool. That's so awesome. And that's that's what I like about, you know, anarchist movements is we're getting rid of class status, hierarchy. We're all in this together. And that's what I think solidarity movement should be about. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, you know, and, and it, it makes perfect sense. Like, why would you why would you be better than the waitress or the waiter? Right. Like, what does what? Like, you know, there's dignity to all work. We're all people doing the thing we have to do to survive. And like. How is, skilled how is labor anyone... that's a capitalist myth that there's no such thing yeah. as skilled labor right right no sure absolutely and i also remember back to a podcast um i don't think it was with you and there's a apparently a book out there like bullshit jobs you know apparently like there's a ton of jobs not apparently i'm i, I will I, I know know very well there's a lot of bullshit jobs out there you know with uh the amount of you know financial analysts uh accountants, lawyers that we have in our society that could be doing, you know, drastically needed billing, jobs and infrastructure. The people who handle building and denying claims at health yeah. insurance companies. Yeah. Insurance companies, just anyone that works for an insurance company, that's a bullshit job. You know, uh, more so a health insurance company, but in just generally, I think we can get rid of insurance. That's, you know, kind of a rich person's scheme. Um, but, you know, one thing, like being a janitor, like that's certainly not an, a bullshit job. But we wouldn't need janitors and hierarchies in this um, division of labor if we all were involved in decision making and, you know, kind of worked together, collaborated. We wouldn't need someone who just cleans up trash all day long. You know what I mean? So uh, I think if we restructured work, you know, and and um, allowed decision making to happen from the bottom up instead of the top down, 
Uh, I think all workplaces would be a whole lot better off. People would feel empowered. And again, we wouldn't need people to, you know, just uh, clean up our trash. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of different things that we could, uh, you know, rotate, you know, rotate responsibilities, stuff like that. Uh, but instead of, you know, people just sitting up in their air-conditioned offices making all the important decisions, that shouldn't be the way work is structured. I think that there has to be, in some some sense, you know, a division of labor, um, you know, where I can't be a surgeon, you know, or I can't be a, right. uh, a pilot, at least without some specific training. But um, at least with decision-making, I think, and, and responsibility, those types of roles, you know, cleaning up trash and garbage and stuff like that, taking care of your workplace, um, that should be, you know, uh, shared responsibilities to everyone, from the CEO to the whomever, you know, the person at the bottom of the totem pole. But again, I would get rid of positions like CEO and hierarchy and stuff like right. that. I would think the workplace is, uh, if there's 50 people in the workplace, you know, one worker, one vote, you know, and the majority yeah. rules. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, you could have someone who is cleaning or doing a specific job, but that person shares in the decision-making and shares in the profits and shares in the ownership. And it's that simple, right? It doesn't, then you don't even have the hierarchy if everyone has one vote, like you say, right? So yeah, it's definitely, I mean, working towards a democratic workplaces, absolutely where, you know, my head is at and where I think even like worker co-ops have increased here in the U.S., right? We're up to like close to 200 worker-owned and worker-controlled cooperatives. And that is, that's the direction. I think as soon as you have people feel that, then it doesn't matter politically, like whatever their ideology is, it doesn't matter, right? Because they've seen how it works to have a democratic control, like true democracy control over a workplace. They've seen what power sharing and what uh, profit sharing and what sharing of ownership does, right? And it, it just totally flattens that out. Just like you say, like that hierarchy is gone. And I think what we've, we would find is that hierarchy is actually inefficient, right? And it's causing more trouble than it's actually saving, right? It's just building resentment among workers or whatever it might be. It's just not, it's not the way forward. No, I mean, my, my end game would be, you know, replacing these transnational corporations, hopefully revoking their charter, getting rid of them. We don't need transnational corporations more rich and powerful than countries at this point. You know, uh, I would like to get rid of them and hopefully, you know, workplaces are democratically structured around local communities um, with um, decision-making split up evenly uh, within the, you know, the group of people that work there and spend, you know, a good portion of their lives there. But that's, you know, pie in the sky stuff. That's, that's what I want in the long-term view. I did have a podcast last week um, with uh Someone I was talking about, Todd Grips Anderson. He's a musician, also a chef, and he was talking about, you know, having worked there for a couple of years at a restaurant as a chef and uh, got a performance review. Uh, and each year they're, they're guaranteed a minimum of 10 cents raise, which is absurd. I mean, people working in kitchens and restaurants, you know, they do a lot of hard work. I've, I've worked there, you know, in college and stuff. It's, it's a much harder job than I have right now, let me tell you something. Yeah. And um, he ended up getting a dollar dollar raise, uh, which is absolutely nothing, uh, as you know, we're in, uh, at least we were this cost of living crisis, um, kind of the catalyst was, was COVID. I think, you know, finally inflation is starting to come down a little bit and wages, wages are actually outpacing that, which is a great thing, even though, you know, inflation has outpaced real wage gains for decades, but it's a nice thing to actually yeah. see. It's just catching up though. Just we catching just, up. Just, just catching up. up. But he had, he had some questions, you know, he's not, a, he's not a far leftist like we are. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have too much experience 
with unions, and this is kind of new ideas to him. So he was kind of asking for advice. So let's have a little conversation. I kind of told him, you know, talk with your local workers, probably outside the workplace. Talk about your needs, your wants, your demands. Get together, solidarity, um, you know, and, then, and and have a maybe a plan. Like if they fire one of us, they have to fire all of us, right? And and, and is he was a I think living in Pennsylvania. That is a you know a, a left leaning whatever Democratic slightly blue state. Uh, so I and la- the, labor has typically been strong there. Yeah, right. I think the um, yeah I think the law is probably a little bit more friendly. Like I was just thinking talking about wildcat strikes. I wonder how that would go down here in South Texas or just Texas generally. I don't think it would go too well, but it was a, you know, I think a positive that he's in Pennsylvania. So talk to me. I mean, you have a little bit more experience with unions. What, what would you, how would you recommend, uh, you know, union workers out there that are interested, or I'm sorry, workers out there that are interested in, you know, organization, unions, representation. I also said like, you know, maybe look up some local unions in the area, in the state or, you know, uh, in the in the local cities, uh, and and see if you can maybe bring in a representative to help um, you know organize that union. We do have um, protections uh, from the law. Sometimes those uh, laws are not enforced. Like for example, when Reagan was in office, didn't he was uh, didn't he say we're not going to enforce the laws and prosecuted the strike? Uh, was it the airline workers? I think when, when yeah, he was in office, yeah, the air traffic controllers, traffic yeah, controllers, right? He just said you can fire them. Yeah, yeah, he fired him. He fired him, and he took control of the executive order, and he got really lucky that there was good weather basically almost the countrywide for, like, the next week. Otherwise, there would have been a shit ton of uh, of injuries and, and deaths uh, as a result of their wow. – Yeah, what an awful – you know, and, and that really set the precedent, right? So that is what, what really set the tone for labor going into that long stretch of 70s, 80s, 90s, and NAFTA and all that stuff where you saw – unions become the boogeyman become the scapegoat and be you know so many things like um i just have like random conversations with folks who are not in unions sometimes just to see where they're at and they'll say stuff like you know i think unions are good in principle but they've just you know taken it too far it's like what does that mean what does that mean especially in an age when ceos are making as a proportion to their average worker just like astronomical and just insane nonsensical figures right but so i think that's a great question you know from your buddy or whatever whoever you were talking to for the podcast like there's absolutely stuff that has to happen if you want to do that in your in your workplace right if you work in a small shop that's probably going to be a little bit easier to have those conversations but it's going to come with conversation and it's going to come with introducing them you know finding i think your example is a great one finding a local union even if you don't want to join up with their umbrella union you at least can bring someone in who's like you know this is how it goes this is what you can do this is what you can't do right really important to learn that right so you just start by having those conversations and once you get enough wouldn't it be a good thing if this was taught in the school system where everyone had a you know what i mean a hundred percent so you you basically just start organizing you get a committee of people who are just interested in the idea and then you start to like introduce issues to them and try to get them excited about union membership for the reason that they can push back on whichever issue it is that they care most about right and then you have to hold an actual like vote and you have to you can bring in the nlrb uh, to make sure that that vote is done fairly and that your rights as a potential you know union as a worker are protected um and you just have to get an up or down vote so, I mean, maybe oh, dangerous oh. in Pennsylvania, but yeah, organized oh, yeah. workers, uh, firing of organizers and and union, um, you know, representatives and stuff like that within the, the workplace. I mean, it's 
probably less common during during a democratic uh, administration. Biden, the so-called you know labor-friendly president, which obviously he's not, but I mean probably a little bit better than Trump. Um, but yeah, I mean it's very common. And Todd even said the same thing. Um, you know, what's what if I get fired when you're when I'm trying to organize this? I'm like, yeah, oh, absolutely. absolutely, it's a very it's real concern. Yeah. And you look at a number of states are considered what they call as a really pretty genius way of framing yeah, right it. To work. Right to work, right? It's such a genius frame because it, it looks as if anyone who is pro-labor is anti-work, anti-your yeah. right to work, which is just nonsense. But, you know, you have states yeah. where that, that's the case and you still can organize and you can still get protection from the federal government as you go through that process. But, yeah, there's a lot more fear, I think, among the average worker. And I, that's by design, right? We, neither of us would be surprised to find out that there are structures in place to make workers scared. But, you know, I, I think it's worth it. And I think folks are seeing it happen. You know, I think that the Starbucks uh, organizing drives that have been successful have been really, you know, something that has drawn excitement from the general public. Yeah. You know, public support for unions is at, is at a high. And I think like as you just see, I just think there's a there's a ripple effect as you see, like the, the six wildcat strikes in mass, like you wouldn't have Andover or Newton this year going on strike if it hadn't worked for the previous four, right? So you just see that work and then other people who might be in somewhat similar profession are like, wait, why don't we have a union? Like my cousin just mentioned that, you know, he's a, he's a paramedic and a nurse. Um, and he recently started working as a paramedic in a hospital, but the paramedics weren't organized uh, and the, you know, the nurses and all the other workers had their unions and the paramedics didn't. And so he ran a little union drive and they got set up as a union. And he was like, it was just the best process. He's like, it involves so much communication, so much getting to know workers, you know, my, my fellow workers that I had never really gotten to know before. And then he said, making the decision together to form a union was like the most powerful part of it. Once he saw them all with buy-in and, and he was like, because we had now had trust for each other, because we had talked our way through this organizing process, we were so much more like buoyed, like excited by the, the prospect of, of forming a union, just because we knew now what that level of communication could entail. So it's just like, it's just a healthier place to be too, right? It becomes a better environment and it's a better environment. The more hierarchical, the, the less hierarchical it is, right? It feels more top down. It feels less involved as a community when you have people dictating union decisions, which unfortunately still, you know, happens within teachers unions. If it's not organized right with the type of strike readiness and, and full membership uh, involvement and participation, and there's there's the threat, so maybe not so much uh, in in your line of work or my line of work, healthcare or you know your line of work, education, uh, job transfer. Um, but the threat of job transfer in the manufacturing industry has happened. I mean, uh, you know, the jobs have been um, offshored and you know shipped overseas to uh, exploit workers of the global south, highly exploited workers. One difference between the United States and Europe is their unions are much stronger there, you know. Yeah. So, but typically, you know, the United States, I think we have less than 10% of private workers are in a union. That's incredibly low for an industrialized, rich society uh, like the United States. But typically, you know, when they off, uh, offshore 
or I guess transfer these jobs over overseas or, you know, to, to countries of the global south or even, you know, just to Mexico, you know, because of NAFTA being able to exploit a highly, um, you know, marginalized workforce in, in Mexico. But, um, you know, just that threat, uh, if you work at a factory and they put up a sign that says, you know, uh, you know, uh, j- jobs being transferred to Mexico, you know, on, on, on the day of a union vote, you know, that could sway some people that, you know, of course it's propaganda and whatnot. And of course all, all they care about is the profit motive. And if they could, uh, you know, shift uh, a couple dozen jobs to Mexico or wherever, you know, somewhere in the global South to, to make an extra zero in profit, they would do it, you know, but uh, just that threat of job transfer could sway, you know, a union organization, um, vote. And then one thing that these um, corporations do, I think I've talked about it with you in the past, they use their profits to set up excess capacity overseas so that, uh, you know, they can have manufacturing centers all over the world. And if a workforce ever, um, you know, strikes, organizes, pushes back against management, they can transfer production to a different plant, to a different manufacturing center so that they can still kind of maintain, um, you know, capacity uh and then they can use that as a uh as a um weapon against the workforce that says hey go ahead and strike you know we're fine for six months we're not going to see any drop in in productivity because again they use these their profits their billions and billions of dollars in in profits i mean i think 2023 was an all-time high for corporate profits so what they're using instead of lining all their pockets you know with with money which they are and offshoring it uh you know putting it in shell companies and and tax havens all over the world um you know there's the pandora papers of course and uh the panama papers which is you know just uh rivers and oceans of dirty money um but uh you know when they when they when they shift uh, when they shift the money offshore or when they invest in um, excess capacities abroad, uh, you know just the threat of job transfer and then utilization of those excess capacities as a weapon, a class war weapon against the workforce. Um, and then also what neoliberalism does not just transfers jobs, but you're also you know putting industrialized workers in competition with workers of the global south highly exploited workers of the global south without unions without benefits with very low wages and what that does is actually uh decrease wages for everyone capitalism kind of functions as you know let's let's shift production to the most exploited uh workforce in the world you know and maybe when those people rise up and fight back for for benefits we'll find another um you know exploited workforce you just try to you know keep shifting to wherever there's the most vulnerable most exploited workforce with the least you know environmental factors and that's part of what the united states did you know and its foreign policy uh and certainly in in the global south uh in latin america you know south america destroying um, you know, labor unions, that's one step, but also, you know, um, cutting regulations and, um, you know, scaling, scaling back organizations like, you know, OSHA and environmental protection agencies, stuff like that. So that's the typical playbook of the neoliberal. It's basically a system of class warfare uh, where, you know, you're using government subsidies. It's a redistribution uh, system of uh, tax money. It's funneled up. Instead of down to the most vulnerable, it gets funneled to, you know, those corporations 
um, so that they can, you know, profit and, um, you know, increase, uh, you know, growth of these, you know, transnational conglomerates that are, again, more rich and powerful than, you know, many countries of Africa and Latin America now at this point. So, yeah, you know, they are essentially, um, you know, they're essentially ruling the world. And, and you know, I'm no fan of uh, U.S. government or really any government, for that matter, as an anarchist. But unfortunately, you know, we have to use these governments to protect us from these transnational corporations, because without some sort of democratic control over our lives, I think uh, we, would live, we would live in some kind of dystopian, capitalist, unfettered, uh, you know, capitalist hellscape. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so like one of the key parts of that process is like disempowering and decrease disempowering unions and decreasing union membership. And, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this on your podcast, on your podcast before is that I ran a podcast for two years. It was called trickle down socialism. Um, but one of the guests I had on was an author and kind of a radio host for, for decades and uh, also a reporter. And he was the editor of the opinion page at New York times for a bit. Um, but he could kind of come about as like a leftist approach later in his life. And one of the, he did a really great investigative piece on kind of, it's called evil geniuses, but on how we got to this place where corporations have total control. We have billionaires who basically run our entire planet. And one of the things he mentioned was that union membership, as a percentage of workers in an economy is a huge predictor for the types of social safety net programs you're going to see society-wide, right? So he pointed to countries in Scandinavia as one example, but one of many examples, and that there's like a magic number, basically about around 60%. Once you get up around 60% of the workers in an economy who are in a labor union, you start to see that the social and again, safety. And again, in the U.S., it's less than ten percent. Less than ten. Right, and at that magic number, you start to see the social safety net become incredibly robust because of the fact that, you, like you'd mentioned before, where you have uh, you know corporations willing to move, you know, transfer jobs and, and cut jobs from big factory towns as a as a method, right? Destroying local of, communities, just driving yeah. across the Rust Belt in the United States, destroyed local communities. What happened in the seventies and eighties here? Yeah, but that becomes impossible when you get to a point where you're at about 60% and that the country next to you and the country on the other side of you are both around that same range of 60%, right? Now you have a really pretty fortified block of of labor input into the system. And that is why, you know, part of the reason why you see such robust social safety nets in, in countries like that. But back to like what we we're saying with getting involved in issues that seem like they might be outside of the normal purview of a union, the the biggest activism we've seen in the in the front of like actually physically stopping the flow of weapons to Israel to fund to, to fuel their their genocide on the people of Gaza is like unions in countries like Belgium who are transportation unions, shipping unions, like longshoremen basically is what we would call them in the US, refusing, absolutely just going on work stoppage to prevent arms and ammunition and bombs from getting to Israel, which is, you know, again, how we see the the union movement insert itself into the broader left and also insert itself into world affairs, right? So if, you, if you've got worker collaboratives that are stepping up to that degree so that they're able to actually have an impact, maybe not, you know, 
we see obviously not a permanent impact. It doesn't lead to a, a permanent and lasting ceasefire, but you're throwing up blocks and, and also you're building solidarity within people around that. So it's, so just like a, a teacher's union will have a knock on effect on a private school in that same town, because that private school is going to have to bump up their salary a little bit. It's the same, you know, it, on the broader scale too. So it's an interesting dynamic to look at. Yeah, no doubt. I think we need an international system of people working together, working class people, real working class representation, but, you know, working together because, uh, you know, what the capitalists will do, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll avoid those kind of countries like Scandinavia and whatnot. They're not going to ship jobs there. But if we had like an international system with strong labor rights and human rights and civil rights and equality and all those good things, um, you know, there's, there, there won't be a country you can ship the jobs to because, you know, we get equal, equal rights wherever we get. So we need some kind of international system. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, the U.S. foreign policy is so terrible. I mean, for the for the world, because we typically the United States, you know, ally with uh, right wing authoritarian dictators, human rights abusers, um, people that uh, exploit um, the working class and, um, you know, you carry out outright genocide, right? I mean, we're, we're yeah, talking about what's going on here in, in Israel. I mean, our foreign policy is abysmal. I mean, I think there was, I even mentioned this on one of our podcasts at one point in time, um, there was a correlation with U.S. aid, talking about, you know, the terror wars and Obama, or not Obama, Reagan's, um, you know, uh, clandestine operations in, in the third world in Latin America during the 1980s. There was a correlation with U.S. aid and uh, how likely a, a country is in torturing their own citizens. And the fact that if a country tortured their own citizens, they were much more likely to get U.S. aid in the 1980s. That's insane. But in fact, in fact, that was our foreign policy. No, of course it wasn't they, because they the were United trained. States loved terror. What, what they was were the trained. Thing? They were trained on how to conduct that torture and that anti-guerrilla activity by their, you know, their paramilitary forces received that training in the United States of America in Fort Benning, Georgia, in the School of the Americas. It's absolute insanity, right? You look at these just foul, foul dictators in the history of Latin America, Pinochet as one example. They, their forces were trained in how to be like horrible, evil people to, to institute a state of full control, like a police state that acts, you know, at the behest of a dictator that was just put in place for the sole reason that it would make business more stable and it would allow for Americans to own property and to own companies within those countries and have no blocks put up by the host nation of that, that neo-colonialism basically. Right. So it's just it, like you say, I mean, overthrow by Stephen Kinzinger, I think is the best way to get yeah. it in a, in a cut yeah, and dried, in a cut and dried format. That's actually pretty enter entertainingly written like as best you can with that information, but it's just a chronicle, a blow by blow. And it's like, Oh man. Right. It's very few, uh, you know, countries that we haven't, you know, inserted ourselves upon and, and tried to just set it up so that it's best for, and not even all Americans, right. It's not like we all benefit from it. It's like just the richest few and just access to resources and just to make sure that they can make more billions on top of the billions that they already have. More, more billions is never enough. Okay. Buster Brown, let me tell you something here. 
We got about 15 minutes, 14 minutes here. We proud. always do this. There's so many things I wrote down and so many things we're not going to get to. You said a little bit about charities. In my opinion, I think charities would be obsolete in a functioning democratic society with a real tax system, a progressive tax system. We wouldn't need these types of charities. 100%. Um, you know, yeah, great, great. So I want to get to, have you ever read any of um, Christopher Hitchens' stuff or looked at any of his speeches or videos, documentaries, anything like that? Yeah, a little bit. I think I gave my uncle one of his books with a bunch of his essays in it, and I read a bunch before I gave it to him in case he wanted to discuss them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely have have it, uh, delved in it a little bit. A say. little bit. Yeah, me too. I haven't listened to a bunch of his stuff, but uh, I, I guess <laughs> I was uh, – reading some or looking at some lectures today and one of his uh one of his came up i think it was christopher hitchens and uh it was entitled his lecture was entitled uh mother Teresa, hell's angel i did not know this uh i always thought that she was well regarded you know on the right and the left she was a good person she was a saint she was actually sainted but as it turns out mother Teresa, pretty big cunt <laughs> <laughs> Have you read it all about? Have you Come read on, it all about Mother yeah, Teresa? Yeah, I mean, I I have. Um, I also I, I also I think get that this on wax. Dude, Mother I, Teresa, she was a cunt. She was a dude. Bitch. I, here's That's the deal. Teresa. Here's the deal, though, dude. Like, I'm from a very Catholic family, and like, if I were to say that in front of pe- so many members of my family, there would be very serious consequences. <laughs> it's so funny to hear you just out with it, right? I just want to. No, I know, but she, but she also had a radical view on on. That people of their her society that were just absolutely forgotten about and she had a real compassion for the for dying for dying people in those societies and she okay, said let me with, get to it here let me get to it i don't want yeah. you coming on here and defending mother Teresa. <laughs> don't you dare come on my podcast and say anything good i mean about that you witch. gotta take you gotta take hitchens with a grain of salt too dude like it's not you know but no i know but okay here's that's here's, funny. What I, here's what i found out because she she kind of um <laughs> framed herself as anti-political and everyone that frames themselves as anti-political is typically, you know, right wing. So she kind of, um, was, was a hero, certainly for the establishment, the status quo. She was a voice for the the, status quo. There's only one reason to label yourself anti-political and that reason is political. Like, it's just so stupid. That's like saying you're, you're unbiased. Like you ever talk with someone that's like, Hey, I'm pretty unbiased here. Already. I know. Yeah. This character has got a really strong bias. I just got to figure it out, you know? But yep, yeah, exactly. Anyways, well, she, she was very good at raising money. She was, she was, uh, she worshiped and admired, revered the rich and powerful. She had yeah. many privileges, private jets, lots of fundraising opportunities. Um, apparently she never really intended to build any hospitals. What she was looking to do is just find a place for the poor to die with dignity. Um, they weren't really providing health care or anything like that. There was a story in this video about um, a 15-year-old boy that had uh, uh, some kidney issue, and it could probably be cleared up with uh, maybe a couple days of antibiotics in a hospital. And they went to Mother Teresa and were like, hey, you know, can we take such and such to the hospital? We, we think that this person could actually, you know, survive and whatnot because most of these people were, you know, kind of on death's door. And she was like, no, you know, anyone that's here, you know, is, is you know, they have, a, it's a, I don't know, a one-way ticket, I'm kind of paraphrasing. But she said, like, you know, if we can't send everyone to the hospital, then nobody goes, you know, that's right. So she was like, you know, kind of an angel of death, a mercenary for the devil kind of thing. Um, and, you know, she was just creating a place, I guess, for the, for the you know, the poor to die with dignity. 
but also like she she allied uh, herself with like I guess Thatcher, Reagan, yeah. South American dictators. Um, it, it was mentioned that you know she was setting up like orphanages and that sort of thing. Why were these kids orphaned? You know, and and she never right. talked about you know the political leaders that she allied mm-hmm. with. And um, she also, you know, in some of the themes I think of her work for the poor were, you know, submission, um, forgiveness, you know, that these people are destroying these countries, war-torn countries and lands, um, basically submission to to authority, subservience, um, you know, just die with dignity, not instead of, hey, let's let's organize the poor, let's get them to stand up for what they deserve, you know, take advantage uh, of their opportunity, yeah. take over their local communities, that sort of thing. So uh, she was also, you know, in, in, in uh, you know, helped out you know, very poverty stricken places in the world. She was also fighting a struggle against abortion and birth control, contraception, that sort of thing. So, you know, these countries are extremely poor with high infant mortality, uh, orphanages, abandoned children, kids with no moms and dads. But at the same time, she's fighting this, you know, this right wing kind of uh, theologian battle against abortion and uh, birth control. And uh, I just, yeah, I, I just think that uh, that's not anti-political at all. She is very much aligned with, you know, kind of right-wing politics. So, anyways, I'll say it one more time. Mother Teresa, she was a cunt. <laughs> okay, dude. I mean, it, Got it. I play. Yeah, I what mean, there's you? there's also, a, there's a rich tradition of, of the other way w- within religion. And, and Catholicism, what, what kind of kept me in it as long as it did was, the history of liberation theology and Love that. and, and yeah. the Catholic worker. Um, but she was not I, you teaching know, that. She was definitely you, not teaching know, that. When you de- when you describe you know submission, subservience, uh, deference to power, all of that is is basically my my main issue with with organized religion, religion on on the whole, right? So it's like, yeah, I think I, I think you're probably right, uh, or whatever about the history of Mother Teresa. I just don't know how. Uh, we need to relitigate that at this stage. <laughs> she died uh, decades ago, but anyways, I just wanted to get on the airwaves. Someone's saying it. I, maybe I'm okay, the first. So it's on. It's on record. You heard it here, <laughs> folks. The MC squared. Yeah, I'm not pulling. I'm not pulling any punches here. I, I did watch. Also, watch the Pat Tillman documentary. I kind of wanted to bring it up. We got I don't know five minutes ago. Fascinating. I mean, the, the government, the military lied on several instances. Basically, wanted a propaganda poster. They wanted mm-hmm. um, a hero to get. Uh, and maybe motivate people to join. That was not yeah. Pat Tillman. Uh, he was into Chomsky. He was into politics. He was oh, an yeah. atheist. Um, so a really interesting documentary. I think I saw it on Amazon. I was just like, oh, is this going to be one of these puff pieces? But it was not. It no, was really good. No. And that uh, Pat Tillman story, it's got a lot of angles to it. Very interesting. Friendly fire. Was he targeted? A lot of unknown questions. And actually, right before he was... Um, Killed. He was actually trying to set up a meeting to talk with Chomsky. He had really, um, you know, turned his views on the you know, American military, their foreign policy, the war crimes. You know, I think he, he said, they quoted him as saying, you know, this is criminal. What's going on here in Iraq? I think he was in Iraq. They were just bombing civilian installations. He's like, this is criminal. This is all illegal. What's going on here? So anyways, people, people in powerful positions in the military don't want to hear that kind of stuff coming from a, a private or a corporal. So a lot of interesting stuff with that Pat Tillman in the cover-up. But uh, I recommend no, it, you check out they, the documentary. They, they rely so heavily on the NFL and NASCAR as like a, a recruiting arm, right? Like we didn't even see that whole like 
uh, flyby and and the big show about the national anthem and all that. And, you know, until relatively recently, because DOD wanted to get more recruits in. Right. So like the the Tillman thing was going to they wanted to keep that under wraps very much because that connection between the NFL and recruiting is so big. And with a story like that, you know, that, that could really like rattle some cages and they they didn't say it directly in the movie, in the documentary, but yeah, parents both um, insinuated a little bit. They thought the cover up went the whole way to the top to George W. Bush. They thought that uh, there were some people in high places and they actually even got Donald Rumsfeld, who I think was the secretary of defense. Uh, They even got him to testify in the case. And of course he denied all allegations and uh, he didn't remember, you know, hearing about Pat dying or he didn't remember, he couldn't recall where he was or any of the details. So, you know, typical, you know, know nothing, say nothing kind of, you know, taking care of themselves, you know, and and, and unfortunately the investigations didn't get anywhere, but a very interesting case, very interesting documentary and Pat Tillman, a very interesting figure. He was definitely a free thinker, very independently minded and uh, read some Chomsky, which I always admire as well. Anyone that reads some Chomsky and understands it and wants to think about it, I would love to bring them on my show because he was kind of the political lightning rod for me that kind of, you know, got me maybe radicalized or whatever. But uh, anyway, speaking of, we talked a little bit about Mother Teresa, anti-political, anti-politics, sports. Let's get the politics out of sports, right, as the as the right wing says usually, as there's a flag on the field, 100 yards long, uh, salutes and service members, self-bombers going over the stadium. Let's get the politics out of sports, though, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely ridiculous. And it's also like the question of how how is it possible that we, you know, it's a, it's an entertaining product that the NFL puts together, but we're still okay with a, you know, a product that's causing the participants to, uh, you know, CTE is such a messy and horrible thing. And we've seen now like, you know, a dozen or more uh, former NFL players from that constant brain trauma in, in the end stage for CTE is, you know, suicidality and also violent aggression towards those closest to you. And it's just such a horrific way to go. And it's just so, let me put this on wax too here. Uh, I saw an article they called, um, they called anyone that opposed uh, Biden um, essentially circumventing Congress by bypassing democratic processes in his weapons trafficking and money laundering scheme, getting weapons to the Ukraine, I think by sending them to Greece and then having Greece send them over to Ukraine, they were labeled, yeah. these Republicans were labeled Russian assets. They might be, they might not be, but here's what I'd like to say. If you, just because you oppose proxy war, oppose democratic processes, oppose weapons laundering or money laundering and weapons trafficking, that doesn't necessarily make you a Russian asset. You know what I mean? No, it's just so, so very, very stupid. Like you look at Rashida Tlaib getting censured for not a single thing that has anything to do with what they claimed it was, right? Like she might've said the phrase river to the sea. That's not at all. All that's saying is that area should be free, right? But they wanted to paint her as somehow 
you know, anti-Jewish. And at the very, at the very time that Israel was setting out on their, you know, genocidal campaign, it is, it's just shocking. You know, it feels like you're in a, you know, the, the madhouse of mirrors or whatever, right? It's just like flipping the image upside down or whatever. You know, Ukraine was the first time that I really felt full, like loneliness because you had so many liberals who were like, of course we should protect Ukraine. You know, and I understand that impulse. But what it became. Hey, we got we got we got one minute. I'll give you the stage. Let me just say one more thing, Mother Teresa. Yeah. I hope you burn hell, you bitch. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Yo, relax. No, anyway, we can we can we can hash this. No, not that one out. We can hash the the one I was finishing to uh, to address there the next time I'm on. But it's always good to be on your show. Um, you know, just keep an eye out for workers and and see how you can help stand up for for what's right for all of us. That's all. I appreciate you, man. You got anything to say to Mother Teresa out there? I do not, but maybe folks can post uh, on on this episode link on it, when you fo- post it on Twitter about what they want to see. She got me caught she... up today. This this documentary I watched, I had no idea. She was she was, I not, mean, she was not up to any good. I don't think. Dude, the world of religion and all, uh, so much of the world is full of shysters like that. It's just like, you got to expect it at this she's stage. A charlatan. Everyone in religion is a charlatan. But yeah, she yeah. was a shyster. She was a charlatan. I, private jets and, you know, not letting children go to hospitals to get simple cures. I don't, I don't like that kind of stuff. No. All right, my friend. It was a pleasure. Let's go. Yeah. Let's do it again next month. How do you say it? Sounds great. All right, brother. See ya. Take care. Keep the 
bitch a lead in the propaganda They kicking that sand up, can't see Got us fucked up, but we gotta get paid Avoid an escape, hope through a fantasy Snapped out of luck, and I slapped on a field To still stay rough, cause it's late in the cave Tweaking my recipe, illusion, get the best of me Call it necessity, necessary illusions